0: Hi, welcome to this episode of A Cup of EJ, the podcast where you can learn a little bit about the environmental movement in the same time it takes to drink a cup of coffee. If you tuned in to our last episode, we talked about climate joy, environmental justice in academia, and inclusivity. This week, we're diving more into veganism, content creation, and environmental justice with our guest, Isaiah Hernandez. Isaiah, would you like to introduce yourself?
1: Yeah, hi there. My name is Isaias Hernandez. I am an environmental educator and the content creator of Queer Brown Vegan, and I'm super excited to be chatting with you today.
0: Wonderful. And as always, I'm your producer and host for this episode, Ria, and this podcast is brought to you by the Environmental Justice Coalition. So our idea for these couple of episodes that we'll be releasing throughout the first couple of months of 2023 was, would be that we're going to focus on famous activists in the environmental movement and their stories. Many of us, as you know, um, know you as the career brown vegan across many social media platforms. So for our listeners, could you explain what drew you to veganism at first and how did you begin in the environmental movement?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I'd say that my journey into the environmental movement started off as a young age. When I grew up in Los Angeles, I grew up in in poverty my entire life, and I remember a lot of the times going to different areas in Los Angeles and recognizing the inequities that existed in communities. Um, One of the things I tell people is that by the age of 13 or I was 14, my dad would take me um, to go clean rich affluent people's homes in LA. and He was a gardener. And so we'd go to different cities like Bel Air, Beverly Hills, um, Calabasas, and you know you clean up the lawn of individuals' homes. And I started to realize, wow, there are people my age that have better environmental outcomes in their life. They have clean water, they have clean air, um, they have really great soil. And yet in my communities, I recognize that there was lack of green spaces there was a lack of air quality, there was a toxic industry nearby our home, and there was a lack of access of healthy fruits and vegetables. And I think I started to ask a lot of questions of why are poor people deprived from resources? Is it because we didn't work hard in life? And so I think that curiosity got me into the environment because after witnessing several climate disasters hit Los Angeles region, I started to become curious about the term global warming. At the time in middle school, this is, you know, generational difference. Global warming was seen as a very radical word and even climate change. Climate crisis wasn't very popular in the mainstream. And in high school, I learned about your zip could be becoming the highest indicator in which you're able to tell your environmental outcome. It measures your gender, your race, and your income status. And that would tell you a bit about the environmental history you live in. And so I was really horrified to see that in the Los Angeles region, specifically in the San Fernando Valley area, there's a lot of issues with water, air, and soil quality, but then it also comes to access to food. Poverty levels are extremely high. Tree inequity exists in those environments. And so that kind of got me to validate, to say, I want to be an environmentalist. And so I went into academia, uh, environmental science at UC Berkeley, thinking that in order to be an environmentalist, you needed a degree and took me a long time to unlearn about the elitism that really perpetuated. And it wasn't until I think the second year, third or fourth year of college, where I learned that you know, where our food comes from is very unsustainable, specifically our, you know, dairy and meat, I was a bit horrified from the industry itself and what it did to animals, what it did to humans, what it did to the environment. And so I saw veganism not so much as this ethical, like not ethical, but more purity status. I saw it more as a justice approach in that as an individual, I'm able to divest away from these systems. And so that really got me drawn into veganism.
0: Yeah, that's really moving, actually, because I think hearing about where activists have started really allows people like me and our listeners to reflect on our own environments hearing about how you had to unlearn in academia, you don't need to necessarily have an academic degree to know environmental science is something that I'm also unlearning as I'm learning sustainability and public health in academia. Mm -hmm. So that's really important. So thank you for pointing that out. And I think that kind of brings up the point of as well as community scientists and the importance of helping communities learn more about their environments, and especially from people who look like us and people of color and people who come from poverty, it's really important. So that is a really good segue, actually, into our next question about content creation so why do you think content creation especially storytelling about climate change is so powerful today and really important in today's day and age
1: as individuals i think it's super important that we recognize that young people are very invested in visual learning models and it's been told and it's been shown throughout studies is that when you give a child a visual learning versus a more in text reading you're less likely to engage with them in that creative material. And I think stories and oral histories are really what brings culture together. The climate crisis is a very multidimensional issue. It's very complex in different layers. If you talk to someone about caring about children's rights or children's education, women's education, houselessness, health care, a lot of people would be confused about, well, how does that relate to the environment? And I think the environmental crisis that we're in today is plundering each other injustice that is continuously happening. Like they're all interconnected. It's not to say that one issue is more important than the other. And I, I tend to say that, you know, people need to be able to showcase their vulnerability of what they're experiencing because I think in academic settings, they're very reductionist in which they allow storytelling. It's all about the science, how quantifiable is the data and how scalable it is. And that doesn't really translate to poor communities of color who are often the ones in front of those injustices. If you're trying to give a child data about their environment being poisoned, what does that mean when they don't even have the power or resources to access what are the tangible steps for them to take? And so I think content creation has really opened a gateway for a lot of young environmentalists to actually explore this after the dominant environmental movement. Specifically, you look at these nonprofits, academic institutions have done a really poor job in allowing storytelling to flourish because it's not seen as quote unquote professional. But I think times have shifted with younger generations is that we cannot really separate culture and oral histories away from these types of discussions It actually brings us together and makes us more stronger as individuals.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and I think storytelling, as you mentioned, also gives a face to the environmental movement and helps people relate a lot better to the science, maybe, or like injustices that they are seeing. It's not just a number on a page or a percentage in a something like far away land. In some cases, it's something that real humans are experiencing and it's almost humanizing the environmental movement. So for people, whether it be professionals or youth who want to become environmentally literate, and especially in today's day and age, that's really important. How would you direct them to becoming environmentally literate? What initial advice would you give them? And what resources do you think would be really helpful and you wish you had when you started out?
1: Yeah, I think for any college students or high school students, it's not about learning every terminology you can and remembering it in your vocabulary. What I tell young people is that it's great that you understand the praxis, but to understand the practice, there is no one set way to do that correctly. You need to involve yourself in those community spaces. You need to involve in yourself in those mistakes. And you have to admit when you don't know everything, I think what happens is that in theory, the terminologies make sense and how they're applied in sentences and how they're applied in, you know, Western science models. But when you look at this community that has tons of issues, the first thing you're going to do is not to tell them what climate justice is first thing you're going to ask is how's your heart and how do we have these humanizing conversations is by exploring your dimensionalities of who you are as a human, right? It is our birthright to have solutions, but it's also our birthright to treat one of each other as the same. And I think a lot of people get disconnected from the fact of in community building, I always ask who wants to eat food first. The food is what brings people together. It's not a, so much about, can you define this term? And the second thing is understanding that everyone has different definitions within those terminologies. I think when I first learned about environmental justice, all I thought about is that your race, class, and gender make up who you are. And environmental justice is basically saying how black and brown people are poisoned systemically. But you know, if you look at the institutional definition, it may look like you know the unlawful practices and policies that are implemented in low-income communities that allow polluters to exist. But that may not make sense for a lot of people because that definition itself is a bit jargony. And so I tell people, it's not it's not about knowing everything, just breaking it down one by another and how that applies to a real world example in your community. When I think about living nearby a toxic industry that was originally shut down years ago in my neighborhood, I think about, wow, that was contributing to air quality, which is an injustice in that itself is an environmental injustice. And to me, giving myself that real world example is much more understanding than what I would read on a textbook. So I tell people, explore, those words and allow yourself to ask yourself, how does this relate back to my culture? And how does this relate back to my individuality?
0: I think that's really wonderful advice. And even I having learned and talked to communities for two years would even take it to heart to implement more about reflecting on my own culture. I think we sometimes get bogged up in trying to solve everyone else's problems yet we don't reflect on what we ourselves know and need sometimes so thank you so much for that i think you mentioned briefly about how food brings people together and i think a big part of your platform is this aspect of veganism and what that means beyond just being a choice of eating habits so what experiences in your environmental movement or in your own personal life have led you to adopt this unique view on veganism as not just being a choice in eating habits, but something more.
1: Yeah, um, I think veganism to me is an expansion of exploring liberation from a multi-species approach. It's not so much about this diet. But veganism has always been about a lifestyle and a philosophy approach in which we explore how non-human animals should be also respected and treated. And that's not to say indigenous communities have never done that either. They have their own explorations of animal liberation theory that existed beyond veganism. But I think that in this industrialized setting, when I talk about veganism, it's not so much I'm telling people they should go or else that makes them a bad environmentalist. But I think that many of us here today that are either college educated or have the resources and are perfectly fine in their health, meaning that you know they don't have certain disabilities or economic issues or barriers that prevent them to go vegan, to not do it, right? like I want them to understand that the ways in which we harvest our food, both in the fruits and produce area, and also the meat and dairy is completely horrific. It is unsustainable for the planet. And I think veganism, to me, has allowed me to criticize the industry more clearly to understand that this is the reason why I say no to eating non-human animals. But I also think that there needs to be this statement in which there are people who are poor that can go vegan. There are also people who are poor who can't go vegan. I think multiple truths can coexist at the same time. It's not so much of like, you know, well, I'm poor, then you should be able to go vegan, right? Because that assumes that justice, equity, and resources were already implemented. But I think we need to be understanding of how do we explore these topics and conversations in environmental spaces to be able to have that discussion? Because every time... I've gone to climate conferences, it's usually me and dairy. And it's completely horrific when you see the salad and it has like cheese and dairy and you're like, but a salad shouldn't even have that. Salad should just have vegetables and seeds and nuts and spices and oil if they want. But these are things where it's become such a contentious topic because I think in the climate crisis, it's become a crisis of individuality of who is able to become the most individual person to be able to be the most ethical, which that sometimes refrains to green lifestyles like veganism, food. free plastic free living you know flight free now child free living and it's it's honestly a bit yeah disappointing to see how it's evolved through media and through individuals but veganism to me brings us more together in that sense and that's not to say that other cultures or theories of change don't either
0: Yeah, I think you brought up a really good point about how the climate change movement has become a little bit contentious. And I think that a lot of it, even though a lot of us rally behind each other and support each other's work, I think in a way it has become what is the right way to solve climate change in a way? What is Mm -hmm. what will impact solving climate change more? What will impact communities more? And I think you are completely correct in saying that every individual has a different perspective, different experiences, and we need to value that. And value what they bring, whether it be veganism, it be flight-free, it be child-free. I think it's just respecting individual decision as well, respecting that individuality. And I think that mutual sense of respect sometimes lacks. Still going on the topic of veganism, how have these views on veganism influenced the way that you approach your environmental work and content creation and the topics you choose to talk about?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I try to really relate it into different audiences. I know that as, you know, as an environmentalist, not everyone's going to be following me for environmental content, not everyone's going to be following me for queer content, not everyone's going to be following me as my experience as a person of color or even a vegan. There's different, there's a lot of different audiences for different reasons. But I think the ways in which veganism influences my work It allows me to add that extra additional layer in which when I talk about justice and oriented that I have this total liberation lens of humans and non human animals. Because in my views and how I see work the loss of animal species and biodiversity isn't because of human destruction, it's because of white supremacy. And so I think there's this terminology that's called speciesism, which essentially says that the oppression of non-human animals is directly linked to human consumption and greed, right? But if you look at what's been happening in our biodiversity crisis, speciesism and racism, in my view, are under the umbrella of white supremacy, because the industrialized systems and these oppressive structures that we see today today were not implemented by indigenous tribal groups. It was introduced by colonists. It was introduced by those who thought that European settlers were more superior than other race. And these types of ideologies are embedded in the foundations of capitalism because we know for who and to whom these systems truly serve. Clearly not people of color, it's clearly um, white cis men that has been centered in these narratives. So I to think that veganism isn't so much of this morality compass on my end, but it's more of my heritage now of how culture is constantly changing and how you can influence younger people to explore their parts of their culture and, and evolve from it. Because to say that culture is stagnant is to say that culture never grows and it's never evolving. And I also think that we have to disrupt cultural values that are sometimes were rooted in the patriarchy or homophobia and transphobia and we cannot just say oh it's just a culture we need to accept for what it is no we should stand against bigotry we should stand against all oppressive structures in our cultural aspects too and challenge them for not for us to cancel one of each other but for us to be better to humanity for us to be better to what we are as individuals in this planet and that's the way really veganism has influenced me is to bring in this other lens and I think that's what kind of brings other people together who typically may not call themselves environmentalists but I can challenge them on those rhetorics that they've been displaying and perpetuating in different types of movements.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really important point that you bring up about culture, because I think people's culture, in a sense, have been, again, erased by colonists, and it makes it hard for people to understand where they came from. For example, I'm Hindu, so a lot of our religion is based on respecting the environment and respecting where we came from, and this idea, again, of multi-species justice. I love how much you have bring up um, Indigenous scholars, heritage, white supremacy, because these are really core pillars that the environmental movement, for example, like white supremacy, seeks to dismantle. And I think it's really important that we uplift Indigenous scholars, their ideologies, as well as people of color and Things like that. So just on the topic of multispecies justice, I think it's really interesting that you brought it up because actually in one of my classes this semester, we talked about zoopolitical exceptionalism and how that connects to capitalism and greed and the fact that humans are considered above every other animal. So I just found it really interesting that you brought that up because I often don't hear that talked about in the climate movement. So I just really quickly wanted to ask, because your name, The Queer, Brown, Vegan, talks about three different parts of your identity. So I just quickly wanted to dive into the first part. How has your queerness played a factor in the way that you approach your environmental work and the things that you've seen in the environmental movement that you would seek to change or improve upon?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think my queerness challenges the dominant rhetorics out there of the environmental movement that has always existed, right? For, we all know this, the mainstream media and the dominant movement in the 1970s, 80s has done a well job to center white individuals as true conservationists, true environmentalists. If we think about famous environmentalists, we probably, are conservationists, we think about David Attenborough, we think about Jane Goodall, we think about John Muir, right? Like these people that are self-proclaimed in narratives, and it's not, to say, I mean, two of these individuals are not the issue, but like, you know, John Muir was racist to be honest, but it's to say specifically, why is it that, well, if you ask young people today, they can name majority of white environmentalists, but barely any people of color. And this is where environmental justice was erased in a lot of our histories. It's seen as too political. Unfortunately, when you have black and brown people, it doesn't follow the aesthetics. It doesn't follow the purity. If it doesn't follow the mainstream kind messaging, because we're seen as aggressive, we're seen as demanding, we're seen as attempting to steal resources. And that's all rooted in this white supremacist and racist narrative. That's been put out there. So I, I think for myself, in being able to navigate through this as, my, as a queer individual, is that I'm always challenging these narratives of heteronormativity. Is what is natural in this world? Right? What is living and non living when they all coexist amongst each other? The systems that we are currently partaking in as individuals does contribute to one's, each other's oppressions. And I think in the environmental movement, I often thought, oh, well, queerness cannot be talked about because it's, you know, a different identity. But then you learn about queer ecology, you learn about Um, two-spirit individuals who still exist today, and they're on TikTok too, of indigenous individuals that are within their divide, masculine and feminine energy. And that doesn't mean that they're gendering themselves, but they have their own identities. And you realize that there was never such a thing of a binary system of a male or female It was always diverse. There is gender diversity. There is sex diversity. When I do a lot of foraging with mushrooms, you realize that the sex of mushrooms have some, like some have up to 70,000 unique sex species that's something that I think we need to start to understand that like we don't exist sometimes on a spectrum. We sometimes exist on different layers that can be explored by different individuals and that's their power. And so I thought myself, I don't need to hide about my sexuality because I've been out since I was 17, but I also need to reclaim my spaces in which a lot of heteronormative and straight environmentalists have attempted to perpetuate homophobia and transphobia to my trans community that exists out there and that's not okay. I I think that's something that needs to be challenged and so in the environmental landscape I hope that is continuously being addressed that queer justice is climate justice.
0: Yeah, I think queerness within the environmental space is a really interesting topic especially if you look at the way the word or like the term Mother Earth originated. It was from white supremacy and this kind of patriarchal notion of being able to wield the earth, manipulate it to your own whims and whatever you want to do. So it's like subjugating the earth as something lesser than the human. And I think it's, again, as you mentioned, really important to deconstruct those notions and make space for everyone to be able to share their viewpoints. And especially when you talked about foraging mushrooms, it reminded me of Anna Singh's book, The Art of Inclusivity, that talks a lot about foraging mushrooms and what that can mean for different people with different identities. So I think that's amazing that you brought up again, that humans have layers and that even amongst other species, we have to kind of absorb what our environment can teach us as well about ourselves, whether it be like our sexuality or even just our environment investigating how we can reach multispecies justice and environmental justice. So going on the topic of environmental justice, a connection that I previously did not know until I talked to you was a connection between veganism, queer identities, and environmental justice. So for our listeners, could you explain that connection?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I'm going to go as much as thorough as i can within this time frame but i tend to think okay um let's talk about a, an existing issue that's been happening when we look at pride right we have to look that pride was a riot it was not a parade a lot of trans women specifically black and brown trans women were at the forefront of these movements protesting police brutality that were inflicting harm on their communities. In terms of it being a person of color and this environmental crisis issue is the amount of something that we don't talk about is that queer and trans communities are sacred to the environment. A lot of the times what queerness is attempted to be erased by heteronormativity is deeming spaces as unnatural and natural. They deemed a lot of queer and trans community spaces as unnatural places in which people can get hurt but that is simply untrue and when we look at queer ecologies and histories that have existed out there when we look at spaces and we say this place is so barren this place has nothing to it right sometimes this is referred as like a desert even a forest or other areas and that is simply untrue what queer ecology and what queerness does is saying that there's always rich history that exists within different dimensions. And that often is erased in heteronormativity because it's not seen as natural. And so what we saw with pride being whitewashed over the last few decades is that people try to say, oh, well, they were just trying to build community and then the police attacked. them. it's like they were addressing to abolish the military and the police and prison industrial complex because these systems were destroying and killing their own community members. And when we were like, well, that doesn't relate to climate. That's more of a racial justice. It does actually relate to the climate because queer and trans communities are part of the environment and you cannot separate them apart. When it comes to veganism, I I tend to tell people it's not so much that sure, those people weren't fighting for directly non-human animals, but you need to consider that when environments are being fought for by queer and trans communities, they don't just mean themselves. They also mean all species. They also understand the intrinsic relationships of biodiversity. And when they are removed from a community that they're tending, that's decreasing biological diversity. It's also decreasing biocultural heritage and conservation that's happening. It's not so much of this, oh, well, I can't see it in real life. That's the thing. You sometimes cannot see hope. Hope exists itself in different ways. And that's what I try to tell people that police brutality, climate justice, the human and social and animal rights component to it is deeply intertwined. It's not so much of like this idea of like, well, it doesn't make sense because they were not advocating for humans or they weren't advocating for the environment. It's about that we're all interconnected as beings. And yes, sometimes it may not look exactly as it should be, but that is what makes this unique work expand itself into different layers in which that we're able to explore and to analyze how do we use a vegan framework to analyze Pride Riot? How do we use, you know, a queer Black feminist lens to analyze how this relates back to queer ecology. And you'll realize that a lot of what is used in queer scholars is queer theory and identifying the power imbalances that exist. And so that's where those connections all come together to me as an individual.
0: That's a very good explanation in such a short amount of time. Thank you so much. For me personally, I really appreciate the time and the effort you take to break down all these connections and the simplicity in which you explain the environmental movement. I think we talked about this a little bit before. The environmental movement can often get bogged down in jargon. I just really appreciate the fact that you took it in very simple terms that an everyday person could understand. And thank you for educating me and our listeners on queer ecologies as well. I think that's a really important topic that needs to also become mainstream because there's a lot to learn from queer ecologies and queer scholars and adopt, I guess, some of their practices and beliefs into further progressing the environmental movement forward. So the last question I have is, I know you said hope exists in different forms. So seeing your platform grow over the last couple of years and evolve has been truly wonderful and inspiring. So what are some of the projects you are excited and hope to pursue
1: in the future
0: or topics you're excited to dive deeper into if you're allowed to discuss them?
1: Yeah, I'm going to be focusing a lot in my work inward to actually start to go beyond this idea of introducing new terminologies. I think my first few years, in the ways that I got noticed, was defining these simplistic terms, but I really have evolved my writing style to actually go more in depth, to actually provide solutions-oriented thinking. I am writing a book right now, which is going to take me some time to finish, but I think that's really where my next step is, is to continue to empower young people to give them resources, because I recognize that a lot of young people are a bit frustrated and feel so much institutional betrayal that exists right now. And as someone who was a formerly a student years ago, I understand that anger. I understand that disruption. I understand that sense of urgency to wanting to do everything. And so I tell young people is that it's not so much about you know telling yourself what you want to achieve in the next few years is asking what is achievable to your mind your heart right now within the first six months within the first year is it to drink water more is it to walk more thinking about these more tangible steps because i think it's really easy for people to burn out in movements because they're giving it their 100 but then they're neglecting their physical and mental health because them growing up they never were taught boundaries they were never taught How to understand and listen to their bodies when they're at the point of burnout. And so I always tell young people, you know, take the time you need to explore yourself because everyone starts at different ages. Some people start at 30, at 40, at 50. I started at 23. You don't need to be, and no one needs to be a nonprofit owner. You don't need to have a brand. You need, you don't need to be like known in the movement. You could just be yourself and just know and have faith that whatever work you do go in, it will always realign you and readjust you because that's something that I always tell people is that I didn't really have a plan during I was in college. i just said, let me learn as much as possible and I'll figure it out after I graduate. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I think the reason why we started this podcast was to show young people and to show people who are interested in learning more about the environmental movement that it is sustainable over the long term, whether it be through a career path in public health or in NASA or becoming a grassroots activist or just hearing from young people a lot of the energy that they bring to the movement. But yes, I do think like with the onset of climate anxiety, and I definitely felt this when I first started that I just, again, wanted to solve everything, fix everything, fix every small institutional problem. Problem, but yet we can't. And I think it's important, I, as you said, to maybe sometimes scale it down and be like, even if I'm impacting one person, that one person is enough to fulfill me, that I change at least someone's life. So exactly. that's a wrap. Yeah. <laughs> and um this was one of my favorite episodes by far. And this is the first episode we've recorded in 2023. So, Isaiah, do you have anything, like any final comments, any platforms you want to point to, or any last words for our listeners?
1: Um, No, I mean, I would just say to listeners, just continue doing what you're doing. And yeah, feel free to reach out at Queer Brown Vegan if you're interested ever in chatting. Thank you so much.
0: Yeah, thank you so much for responding. Um, I often say that I shoot my shot with a lot of these guests. So it's been a true honor to talk to you and know you more, Isaiah. And yeah, so hopefully you've learned a little bit more about the environment. And maybe you've had a cup of coffee too. Make sure to follow us on Instagram at the Environmental Justice Coalition for updates about the podcast and send us a DM about how you like this episode. Make sure to follow at the Queer Brown Vegan on all of his platforms and see you next time for a deep dive into another environmental topic. Thank you so much, Isaiah, for joining us today.
1: Yeah, thank you so much again.